From Immersive Labs, this is Cyberhumanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyberhumanity is the podcast taking cyber security personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. This episode is a special and we have a special guest. Now, some of you may remember a few months ago, we did an episode called So You Want to Hack an election and so well received was it that we thought you know what we should do a whole series of episodes on so you want to hack and this is the first hopefully of many of those and we are asking so you want to hack a car and we thought who better who better to have on a podcast about hacking cars than a guy who knows about hacking cars it's almost like it was planned. So welcome to Cyber Humanity, Mark Adams. And Mark, I'm going. I'm not going to read some potted bio. Um, instead, uh, tell us about your background and tell us uh, about how you know about um, about cars. Hi, Chris. It's great to be with you. Uh, yeah, my name is Mark Adams. I um, my history is that I spent 25 years working at GCHQ. Silence. Um, I then left to uh, co-found a security startup. We were working on security detection and uh, risk and threat analysis in real time. Um, a few things happened. I won't go into the detail. I ended up in San Francisco working for Lyft, the rideshare firm. Uh, working for Lyft was really interesting. Um, I got a really great intro to the Bay Area tech industry. But in particular, Lyft has an autonomous vehicle outfit called L5. Um, but being in that area, I got to find out about how uh, a lot of the AV industry works. I suppose I should also mention that podcast regular Paul Bentham joins us for uh, the one person out there who might care about that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You mentioned kind of the autonomous vehicles um, side. I suppose there's a more kind of, if we think about the future, um, there's sort of a more obvious attack vector, isn't there, when it comes to the future on autonomous vehicles? You know, there's something more slightly more tangible and obvious about that um whereas i suppose that's slightly different to you know what my car what my car can do today um perhaps that's hacking in a in a different way am i right in thinking there is quite a big difference between those two things well there is and there isn't i mean if you look at the history of how control networks have been built in cars there's a there's a you know a history that goes all the way from the 1980s when the can bus data technology was invented all the way through to modern cars connected cars is that campus stuff mark is that literally built in the 80s the original campus and it's still the same control plane that we've got in our cars today the technology has um, evolved and changed so canvas version one was uh was built by bosch in in the 80s canvas version two came out shortly after and everything's built on that autonomous vehicles are the autonomous control is built on top of uh the canvas and and there's a machine that's controlling uh you know the, the vehicle through the canvas i had no idea about that i kind of i thought that the can i thought autonomous vehicles would be all modern technology like totally new control playing new ways of talking to the engine but it's just literally like a computer plugged into the standard control plane that's that's in in the cars already it's more complicated than that so there are newer control planes but they are still derived in terms of the technology from from canvas so there are new you know the Flexbus is uh, a similar concept that allows higher rate control of you know integration of lidar and other control systems you know there's higher data rates but essentially a lot of the design principles make their way through the all of this technology from from the 1980s to the modern day 
I mean, one might say, why reinvent the wheel? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to see how many car puns oh, I can cr- I can cram in. <laughs> let's take a step back and simplify, man, because I'm already a bit lost. Um, let's uh, talk about what Can Bus actually does. Like, where does Can Bus live? Um, and how is Can Bus connected to what a car can do? So Can Bus came out of... Um, you know, the wiring in cars getting out of control. So as cars became more and more connected, um, I think, you know, uh, I think it was a Rover car, one of the sales adverts said it's got 20 miles of cabling in it and just, <laughs> like, it was just too much wiring going on. Was that, please tell said, me that wasn't a marketing effort by someone at Rover because that would explain a lot about what <laughs> happened to Rover. Obviously, he's no, someone who doesn't know anything about engineering. So somebody decided, <laughs> hey, can we make this a lot simpler? Um, there's a lot of point-to-point cabling. Um, the other thing is like a lot of sensors in the car started to be consumed. The data was consumed by multiple parts, like the engine wants to know and the RPM meter wants to know you know all this sort of stuff so um canvas was a simplification you know in a sense you can think of it as a cable replacement technology that's that's where it all came from you know so the canvas is a is a much simpler it's a data network digital data network you can sort of think of it as as ethernet for for the car um a single you know the, the vision was a single bus wire that connected all the components together any reason why they didn't just go Ethernet then, Mark? Because Ethernet tech was around in the 80s. There's some sort of resiliency or bandwidth or some reason why we, they wouldn't use some off-the-shelf solution? Yeah, totally. So um, the, the canvas has different design principles behind it. So it's totally essential inside a car that there is low-latency deterministic communication of messages. So you don't want a car to crash because, the, oh, the network was busy and we weren't, we weren't able to respond to the brake pedal in time. Sorry. <laughs> right, you know, so, yeah. UDP, not a good solution. <laughs> Sorry, we were busy tuning the radio. We couldn't respond yeah. to you mashing on the brake pedal. Um, and there's also some design principles around reliability. So... Um, the, the the design of the network is much simpler than Ethernet. That's uh, you know that's just where it's come from. And then there is another principle. I I, I guess you know because it's the car industry, everything has to be low cost. So there are some design principles that mean that the components are really simple, really reliable. Data data messages don't go missing, um, and it's it's perfect for for the for the car environment. Well, there's another there's another thing is that um, you know inside inside a car some a lot of electrical noise as well so you you need a network because resilient electrical noise i think we've understood that the that the that in the modern day vehicle um the the canvas is kind of the brain of the car if you like and it therefore is connected to loads of other stuff that's going on inside the car um let's go back to our our original uh, question and and start from start from motivation so we want to hack a car why why would we want to hack a car? What is the sort of, what's the potential motivation for for hacking uh, a vehicle? Seems to me like the first most obvious one might be, well, there's something inside it that we want. And so that says that if there's some way of hacking the way that the vehicle unlocks, that could be a good starting point for us. Um, is that connected to Canvas in any way, the vehicle's locking system or security or any of that? Um, absolutely, it can be. And I, I think, you know, attacking a car is something that's been done for decades. You know, the most obvious economic advantage for an, for an attacker is to gain the car and sell it somewhere else. You know, that's been going on forever. So data networks in, inside a car um, quite often part of the security systems. Um, so they are an attack vector in order to allow for somebody to to steal the car. 
And unlike a lot of modern cars now have the kind of remote unlock facility using your um, an internet connected device, so I can unlock my car with with uh, with an app on my phone. That always feels to me like a bit of a soft underbelly of the car security system. Um, it's much harder, I imagine, to clone the kind of RFID. Um, keyless entry or literally the key than it would be to sort of hack a shoddy third party um uh app i mean i think you've you mentioned the mobile phone there so this is the heart of of why can bus is interesting and car data networks are interesting they started off as a cable replacement technology and became more and more connected so now the can bus is connected to the infotainment system it's connected to all sorts of stuff on the dashboard it's connected to your mobile um it's connected through gateways through to the manufacturer's uh, control systems so there's a lot of interconnectivity there in the modern age that wasn't there right at the start you would, if you were going to build a car you'd get you'd have it sent telemetry back home like planes have been doing that for years that makes total sense again not a thing i'd ever thought about but that again then gives me this kind of like threat model where i hack you know mercedes hq and i end up with central centralized uh sort of command and control over a global fleet of cars where hopefully they can't do anything tell me they can't do anything mark and it's just one way telemetry oh well Uh oh (laughs) oh dear don't make me lie Go on, Mark. What could they do? What could they do? Like you say, you can unlock uh, a car with your mobile phone. So, you know, a mobile, we all know, we know a lot more about the attack vectors on mobiles, don't we? Um, There's a way to steal a car. Um, And uh, so I guess, you know, the threat vectors from manufacturer through to cars have probably not been very well mapped out. Well, especially with SodaWinds. I mean, everybody's thinking like, oh my God, supply chain compromise. Like... I, I don't. I, it doesn't feel like we're even starting to scratch the surface of the kind of vulnerabilities of this kind of new new age of fully internet connected vehicles. Uh, don't even get me started on what happens after they start to get to end of life and they don't get the security patches or all that kind of uh, stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of old cars on the road, and I don't want a lot of old. Uh, security systems on the road really there's several reasons why the security of a car modern connected car is not as well understood as say your home pc so it's very easy for just for someone to learn about the security of something like microsoft windows it's very you know quite quite likely to have a windows laptop if you break it all right you can reinstall windows or you can start a virtual machine it's very easy to work out how to train yourself to to uh, interact with the device to compromise it it's quite different with a car so, you know, if you think about if you kind of go and hack your car, Paul, I know you've got like a very expensive gold plated Aston Martin. <laughs> and, you know, if you brick that, that's going to be quite expensive to repair. So there is a disincentive for people to really get in to understand what you can do with cars. This is precisely why I've never let you anywhere near it, Mark. You keep telling me, oh, I've got this. Hey, Paul, can I? Uh... <laughs> no, Mark, you can't. Nowhere near it. There's there's several groups of people who are looking at security of cars. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of security engineering going on. Um, there's two really, really famous security engineers uh charlie miller and chris falasek um started a lot of this so they worked out they could um remotely interact with a jeep and so they invited a journalist to take this jeep for a ride as they were interacting with it um they made sure a picture of them appeared on the infotainment system and then uh, a bit later on the um the brake and accelerator pedal stopped working altogether and um the journalist rang them up and said please can you spare my life oh, God. and uh, wanted to do an experiment so that was, that was 
That gives you an idea of what's possible. Now, you know, we talked about the, the motivation for doing this. I, I think there's more motivation to steal cars than there is to destroy them. So I think that means that people aren't really looking at that as a problem at the moment. But it feels like the more connected the car gets and the, therefore the more data it it holds or uses, that could end up being a potential uh, attack vector. Um Plus, I suppose the other thing at the moment is the, the the physical security of the car is so, let's be honest, fairly easily overwhelmed by like a crowbar or an elbow um, that actually there's not much incentive to find some cleverer way to do it. Um, but I think as more things access the car, um, there is the potential, I suppose, that attackers will look to find ways to use the data that's available. I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, you've got that app on your on your phone, Paul. Um, does it have things like your, um, you know, your home address or, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, other personal information about you that potentially could be could be used by accessing the car, I suppose? I mean, it's got it's worse than that though, isn't it? I mean, if you really go down that road, there's such a your phone is probably one of the most personal things that you own, right? And people are very you very careful with them, um, rightly so. Your car is there, isn't it? Like it knows where you've been, it knows where you live, it knows you know which journeys you've made, knows if you've been breaking the law by driving too fast or not paying tolls or all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, there's a real you know personal connection with your car, and, and the idea that and you know some sort of malicious threat actor would steal my location history for the last few months and then blackmail me with that is it's just a small example of the kind of um, PII effectively that's available in those systems before we even get into the stealing the car you know killing me killing other people by taking malicious control over it so that one taking malicious control over it I want to get into that a, a, a little bit without without um, maybe getting too technical but understanding how feasible that is because clearly the guys with that jeep proved that there was a way of either you know disabling the brake or forcing acceleration of some kind how how, how is that achieved mark how, what is it that's changed in the systems that enable for that kind of intervention because to most people that's the bit that's terrifying it helps to really understand how the can bus is a single network um, a lot of the fail-safes, if there are fail-safes you want to over, override, the fail-safes are reliant on data which is on the CAN bus. If you're attacking the CAN buses, you can mess with the data that the fail-safes are looking at. And that's that's really what Miller and Valasek, that's, that was their attack on the, the network of that car. So it's kind of the if this, then that. It's it's a way of it's a way of maybe conning the data to tell the system one thing and then kind of force an action yeah so for instance um there is a known attack on a on a car um that they they wrote up um which is that the you know you you can't steer the car automatically unless it's in reverse gear at going at slow speed but where does the information that those states are achieved that's on the canvas and that's the fail safe so if you put different data on there going yeah we are you know we're going forward at 40 miles an hour and you say we're going backwards at, at two miles an hour then it unlocks the ability to then feed feed messages to the control system now, I think that hack was done in Die Hard 2, if I'm not mistaken, where they told the plane that the ground was further away than it was. And that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? I love to shoehorn in a spurious movie reference. I guess it is. Very yeah. good. Good, good Die Hard good. shoehorn. We just touched there on the kind of interaction of your phone with 
the car. I am assuming there might also be some way to get malicious code into the car, either via a mobile device or with the intention of getting access to a mobile device. And I'm thinking about, I suppose I'm thinking more about things like the infotainment system and those USB interactions. Or is that part of CAN bus as well? Um, so the infotainment system is, you know, quite often connected to the CAN bus. Yeah, totally. There are several places on the car where, you know, code can effectively be stored persistently. So the infotainment system is one of those things. But there's also, you know, control units, the ECU, powertrain control modules. Um, and it, there are protocols that allow those things to be upgraded uh, over the CAN bus uh, using UDS diagnostic systems. That's how an engineer would typically flash new firmware into an ECU. Those things are manufacturer specific and not well documented. That would be very, very hard to pull off. But it's useful to know, you know, when you factor that into the threat model, there should be security mechanisms that prevent an attacker from, you know, persisting in the code on the car. So so, so pulling that thread then, we've got the Jeep. I really liked how you used the Jeep example. You were like, those two guys interacted with the vehicle we'd have been like on the podcast normally we'd have been like hackers maliciously target like in that example did they have how had they compromised the vehicle had they put something in connected to the canvas they were interacting with remotely or were they were interacting with the vehicle so was it like a setup or were they interacting with the vehicle over some sort of you know mobile network uplink what what uh or was it a pre-programmed series where they'd stored in a malicious like malware on the car that did some stuff and pre uh, pre-arranged uh, points so in uh, this example um they were using an upgrade to the vehicle that that gave you the mobile application integration with the car so that was wasn't a standard feature and uh, so they had enabled this on the car and were using uh, you know that mobile interface to interact with the car they were able to just take control of of the CAN bus through through that interface. Oh right, so they hadn't they hadn't cheated, so to speak. They hadn't like stuck a, like a Raspberry Pi connected to directly to the CAN with a, like a mobile phone antenna on it. They literally used whilst it was an upgrade. They they had literally used like authorized channels. Yes, that's, that's totally correct. Amazing from from there from the comfort of their sofa. I love it. I love this stuff. It's so tangible. That's what I like about it. Hacking like machines is like yeah, whatever. But the, this is like oh my god. Um, Chrysler were really unhappy that the, the way they publicised this, but you know we've got to have our fun as security engineers. Oh yeah, well everything else, everything else that's vulnerable gets to be exposed in the you know gets to be exposed in the wider world. So why not? Why not? So and just to prove the point that that was patched, it, the patch was rolled out to made available to all all customers it was something that affected every vehicle that had had that upgrade remote firmware upgrades are a thing of of beauty to me in some respects and a thing of terror as well so that's and especially you know bringing in the supply chain compromise angle as well and the manufacturer compromise just because it just feels so exciting to me so in in the situation there the jeep had a patch applied i presume that was a recall was it because most manufacturers how do you yeah how do you do it otherwise uh, i i remember that was a recall so that had to be done you know in, through in a, in authorized a, dealer right and so and you're not going to get 100 percent coverage so there are still some jeeps that if they had had this upgrade would still be vulnerable to that particular exploit vector 
Tesla, let's now pick up Tesla, right? So let's think about the most advanced internet-connected cars, that well, internet-connected or networked cars. Tesla, to me, I don't, there might be others, but Tesla, to me, is like the kind of poster child for that. And one of the things that I always love about Tesla is that it's a bit like a phone with wheels, right? So it, Tesla sends, you know, pushes that upgrade. I think you can go to like radical mode or whatever it's called with an over-the-air update. You can get autonomous <laughs> mode but with an over-the-air update. This sounds like the thing of magic. And it also sounds like the thing of nightmares if Tesla were set to uh, be compromised. And we know that Tesla are a target because we've had, you know, the example with the, the Russian that met the Tesla engineer in the in the in the supermarket car park or whatever it was to bri- to bribe them to do to do whatever and we don't really know aren't they also do sorry don't i remember a story from back just a few months ago that tesla are now doing over the air they are doing those over the air updates and and the, the argument in the security community has been that that has actually created a you know um potential uh, vulnerability yeah no that's exactly my point so tesla are doing this mark tell me that it's not dangerous everything can be hacked theoretically it's all down to the security engineering and, and what tesla are doing i'm not familiar with what they're doing to protect that so you think it's a theoretical so we like to rampantly speculate mark obviously as a guest here you don't you're not familiar with our kind of the sky is falling chicken little uh, approach to podcasting but in theory a compromise in the kind of build server that pushes firmware out to tesla vehicles could could compromise the whole tesla fleet okay i'm just taking the paranoia potion now Good. now we're talking and, oh you're totally right i, I mean you know I, I guess you can think of that as a supply chain attack you could like take it all the way from the code that the developers put in they build a firmware image that gets pushed out so there's there's a lot of points you know if you if you want to think about the supply chain tack opportunities it's the same with with software development it's incredible to me and i would it's regulation i'm just you know putting a random thread here but regulation is that anywhere to, to like close to keeping up with this sort of stuff like if you've got a plane in the sky i did some of this at uni with like safety critical system fail safe you have the seven computers i think in some airbus uh, model where you know they have to have a majority agreement otherwise it all shuts down you have dual all that kind of stuff very important for keeping planes in the air very regulated as we know um cars i guess where where is 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 there any regulation in in either autonomous vehicles i guess that's coming but in this kind of middle ground where you've got the potential for a malicious actor to take over a vehicle through like a firmware upgrade process is that is there any kind of sense of like controls regulation security elements be baked in or is it is it up to the manufacturers themselves at the minute? there's no specific rules or regulations around the security so government has started to use can bus and the related technologies to do things like control emissions so they're you know manufacturers are required to put some of these things in to allow emission data to be collected i wonder why i wonder why they've introduced that <laughs> <laughs> it's possibly because car manufacturers were Being a bit naughty. let's say they were rampantly <laughs> speculating about the emissions that were yeah that were coming out of their cars but there's nothing that specifies how that data should be collected or the security that should be in place. So actually, you know, I'm, we, we talked about different reasons for wanting to try and hack a car. 
um, there is potentially a motive there for somebody to try and introduce something that lies about emissions data. So I think what it feels to me like, Mark, what you're saying is that Canvas gives opportunities to access types of data that can help with securing the vehicle um, and so is therefore seen as being a good way of creating regulations that make requirements of manufacturers. Is that is that basically what you're driving I, at? I, I wouldn't put it as strongly as that. So I think you know, the regulation has started to appear in some in some respects, but it's you know, the things that governments care about is the emissions at the moment and they don't really care about the safety. There's no, there's no standards being driven in requirements on every manufacturer in, in how they protect these data networks. There is a lot of compliance in the world of, uh, of uh, auto manufacturer, so they have to prove things in tests in, in various governments, but it doesn't go down as far as saying you've got to run TLS or anything like that across the networks. But that surely must be changing in the context of autonomous vehicles because you're putting the car, you're putting the car in control. So please say that there are increased, there's like the likelihood of increased regulation around how autonomous vehicles would be secured. So in California at the moment, the regulation seems to be largely about getting the AV uh, manufacturers to describe stats about how, how efficient their operations going. So for instance, they report the number of times that the AV system kind of crashes out and hands control to the, to the safety driver, but they, they haven't really gone down into the depths of like, how do we actually secure this technology? Yeah, because the, because it feels to me like the natural, um, and, and dare I, dare I say we might be headed towards a, you know, a usability over security, you know, that old, that old chestnut. And um, we might be headed towards that when it comes to, you know, saying, um, yes, a vehicle can drive itself. Um, and, and we care that the vehicle can drive itself safely, but we actually care less about whether the systems that enable that vehicle to drive itself are fundamentally safe. And I feel like that's kind of what you're saying. Like right now, there isn't that second part is definitely not seen as being as important. I, I definitely agree with you. And I think there's another interesting, we talked about how Canva started out in the 80s and has sort of basically developed incrementally. You think of another change that's coming is the autonomous vehicles when that when becomes autonomous vehicles as a service one of the key things is there isn't somebody with a key who's a guardian of the vehicle inside the vehicle saying hey don't mess with the wiring you know so there's there's another threat vector there that i think hasn't really been explored is like this technology is inside the car keeping the car safe how do you make sure that people who get in the car don't mess with it are we are we saying then that you know, imagine we have put usability at the at the forefront, and we've said, you know, then there obviously is going to be a failsafe for a person who steps into a who steps into an an autonomous vehicle. Um, what kinds of mitigations, visibility, um, what kind of I suppose detections in some ways, do we think there could be in the future for an autonomous vehicle? If I need to secure an autonomous vehicle. What do I need to know about it to know that it is safe? I, I think this is actually really hard to do. How do you secure something physically is is actually a difficult problem, right? Mm. So um, if you've allowed some random person to get in into the car, how, how are you going to be certain that they've left it in a safe state? I guess I guess an interesting question to play out would be, so let's this, this talk about a theoretical attack. Um, we connected car, connected to my mobile phone, so... I don't think anybody's done this before, but imagine what would happen if I got in my car and it's a, it's the victim of a ransomware attack. And uh, the, <laughs> We're not unlocking the doors until you pay us two Bitcoin. Well, or, or just the car's not going to work until you pay us, you know? Um, oh, okay. 
You know, yeah. you need to get to work. Yeah. Are you going to pay or not? So I guess some people would, but actually, I don't know. What do you guys think? Would, if you knew your your car had been ransomware attacked and they had flashed the firmware, um, and they said if you pay this money they'll flash it back, would you would you consider that to be a reliable? Vehicle? Yeah, and this is kind of my point because I I like I said earlier on, I feel like the physical at the moment physical the physical security of a vehicle represents its greatest kind of its greatest weakness right because i can break the window and get into it right that that is and that is mostly what happens when it comes to you might argue hacking a vehicle today is smashing the window unlocking it hot wiring it and driving it away um you might argue that's the the greatest risk that we face today i think what you're what you're um, pointing out here is the idea that as our cars become more connected so therefore the the threat surface increases and also how much we care about it increases so for example if i get in my car and i can't go anywhere maybe i'm not as bothered and i think i could do something to retrieve it whereas if you said um if you don't pay the ransom the car that is currently sat on your drive is going to get driven away and you won't know where it's gone well that's a different thing now because teslas or whatever it, whatever it is you've bought you know is is not a, that's not cheap right so now you're talking about something being um uh, being stolen so it's almost like the the melding of the cyber and the physical with i've hacked your car and by the way if you don't pay me money i'm going to drive it away and take I, it somewhere else. You know that question that you pose there, Mark, as well, if I was faced with my car had been ransomed, my instinct, and this is, I can see this is, doesn't really hold water, but my instinct would be to hold the manufacturer accountable. It, like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, no, that's right. That's yeah, right, but, surely. But it, I would actually want them to fix it. Anyway, I don't think I would trust the ransomware hackers to, to reflash the firmware <laughs> exactly. properly. I'd want the new ECU in it. But but you're totally right. What this this is something that people are used to. This thing is safe because of the things the manufacturers did. Why why aren't why aren't mm. they taking care of this? But it's interesting because in a, in a parallel, if my phone got ransomed, I wouldn't ring Google up and say, Hey, my phone got ransomed, fix it. Like I hold you to account. It's obviously something and even if it wasn't something I had done even if it was a security vulnerability that was introduced in an android os version that was then exploited by an attacker to uh, get ransomware on there it would still be my accountability mm. whereas actually in a car situation and i don't know whether this is just an emotional response from me but in a car situation i'd expect almost irrespective of how old that car is if some and and you do have this standard setting cars because you have recourse for safety now of course ransomware perhaps not a safety issue but I, I feel like I would definitely hold the manufacturer accountable, irrespective of the age of the car. Actually. You think if a vulnerability was introduced, for example, that made the made the app on your phone, because that seems the closest example to the future, if you like. So if we we had a, we, there was a situation where the 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 app on your phone was vulnerable, and that effectively gave an attacker a route to hacking your vehicle. Your answer would still mm. be the same. Like my feeling is that the manufacturer of the vehicle should take some responsibility for the nature of that of, of that vulnerability because i've done all i can to sec to secure myself i suppose the problem is that increased connection increased amounts of software 
increased connectivity generally, increased data inside the vehicle. All those things are are moving us towards this being less a physical thing with wheels on it and more a software thing that happens to drive from A to B. That's where we're going, isn't it? But it's still the most expensive, second most expensive thing you own. It's the most expensive bit of software I will yeah. ever buy, yeah. <laughs> That's very different from your phone. I think you're used to the phone being disposable and not being able to hold, you know, the software developers to account. But this this is a thing that is very expensive. You 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 paid all that money because you wanted something reliable and you wanted it to take you to work and do. It's interesting, isn't it? With. I mean, there's there's some fascinating line of thought here because, of course, lots of people lease or um, long term hire or PCP their cars. So actually, the ownership is a kind of a weird amalgamation between still under warranty, owned by the lease company, or partly owned by your your financer. But then there's also um, the other parallel where it, where insurance comes in, and and I'd be kind of fascinated to, to to see if there's been any insurance claims where um hacker or like bad actor let's call it bad actor steals my phone somehow you know gets past my you know birth date pin code and then is able to access the app on my phone which starts my car unlocks the doors and allows them to drive it away like that is that an insurance claim is that cyber insurance is that fraud is that my own liability because i didn't put a secure pin code enough on my phone like that whole route is going to be really interesting over the coming years i think it feels like today though what you describe if what you describe was possible today you know i shoulder surf you at work and see what your pin code is and so now i know how to turn your car on and get access to it and all that kind of stuff that feels to me like it was today would still be an insurance claim because fundamentally somebody stole your vehicle regardless of how they of how they got access to it i suppose the argument would be the more frequently that happened um maybe there would need to be a change in the you know a change in the way that ins- insurers were um were providing insurance there's a t- moment coming a tipping point coming a a a f- a fulcrum coming that is the that is the difference between a vehicle today that isn't we don't need to hack um whereas a vehicle tomorrow that will need to be hacked because of its connected and autonomous nature and so therefore once that is the case the attack surface is going to increase and we need to have a different mindset about securing vehicles i think you're right but i think most of the we can think of as attacks on vehicles today are really are still really the same economy about stealing the car and you know so we have some of the other attacks we talked about driving cars off the road that's that's not happening ransomware attacks are not happening and so it's just about car theft um whereas things are going to change and like as you say um you know today it's very easy to steal a car by breaking the window um there are security you know locks in place that prevent you starting the car but you know still it's very easy to steal a car if you can just shift that that chunk of metal Nearly all of the hacks that we do hear about, if we think about today, the world we live in today, are to do with the fob. I think almost all of the hacks that I've seen. Can you talk to us a little bit about the sort of the nature of the fob and perhaps why it is such a um, an obvious channel for like hacking and, and vulnerabilities? I think I read three or four stories before this podcast and nearly all of them were examples of how the fob was used in some way um, in order to be able to hack the car. So, so one of the well-known attacks is based on these these radio fobs. So the idea is that the the car can tell that the owner is nearby based on the strength of the radio signal, um, can check that it's the owner because it's 
because the right crypto features are available in the signal and uh, use that to say, yeah, okay, I'll unlock the doors and I'll let you drive. Um, so one of the attacks that that is, I think it's fairly well known now, You, um, if the perhaps the owner of the car is asleep in the house, um, you could use some sort of high gain antenna to pick up the signal, take it closer to the car and replay it. So it's a kind of, it's sort of replay. And the encryption of that, the in- encryption then doesn't prevent that kind of amplifying of the of the signal it only encrypts i guess between the key and the car i guess you can think of it as a replay attack it's a very simple attack um it's just i guess we're used to a replay attack being traveling through time whereas this is traveling through space the 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 signal is just too far apart for the car to take any notice of it we bring it close to the car and the car says right that's right next door to me so now now we'll uh, enable all the security features i never know whether that's as ubiquitous as as they make out that it is. I've seen it featured in so many like different places where you're hearing, you can buy this thing off eBay and it's, you know, a piece of cake to steal someone's car. But I'm not entirely sure how frequently it's, uh, it's happening. I might be wrong. There might be loads of high scale, like car theft going on using that very technique. But I think you had a very short window of opportunity where the manufacturer, another interesting thing about patching, right? So manufacturers release these uh, keyless cars, keyless entry, really great idea. And I, I actually really enjoy it now. I know how to lock the cars. My first experience with a keyless uh, uh, entry was on a hire car in the States and probably was there with you, Mark. And we, and we um, and I had no idea how to lock the doors. Turns out you just touch the handle, but I'd never, I you know, me and my Ford Focus had never experienced this before. Um, but that i think there was a window of opportunity there where they hadn't really considered the idea that the key would still be live and you could do this replay attack the mark's describing um but i think the newer cars and certainly my car has this ability where you um you put the key down and it's off actually if it, it could be right on top of the car if it's not moving so it's got movement centers in it to know that it's like live and you just walked up to your car type thing and you can literally turn it off. So if you double double press the lock button, now it's it's a dead key. And keyless entry then doesn't work either, which is kind of okay. But the manufacturers responded to this. But of course, for whatever window it was, 2014 to 2018 or whatever, cars in that in that window have got this vulnerability and people have to put their keys in a lead-lined box whilst wearing their tinfoil hats. <laughs> <laughs> or they have to look out for people camped in front of their, camped in front of their house with a gigantic antenna. It's probably going to be a giveaway. It's basically gone in 60 seconds. That's basically what we're talking about here, isn't it? I haven't seen that. Is that the methodology? Yeah, well, I think they, they use that in, uh, to steal some expensive-looking Mercedes. Uh, they use a coat hanger as well to steal the old cars. Which is kind of the whole thing in microcosm, isn't it? Like you get like these days, you could just use a coat hanger. Um, I think the coat hanger was like you grab onto the... Um, you pull the knob the, up. The button, the yeah, and and, it, and then it and then it opens the. For kids listening, in old in your in your dad's car, you used to be able to lock the doors with a little button that came up and out of the door, um, on the inside, not on the outside, and that and then you push it down or pull it up, and if it's up, it's unlocked. If it's down, it's locked. So you could put a coat hanger in through the not over the seal of the window down, and to pull. I'm I'm actually doing the actions here, not great on a podcast. Um, and you can pull that knob up. And then the car unlocks, and then you rummage underneath the. Um, this is a technical term. You rummage underneath the steering wheel, find the red and the blue wire, touch them together, and it starts. Just start as simple as that. You just go into the steering wheel, touch those two wires together, and it starts. I've never heard a good explanation of how hot wiring works, really, either. <laughs> it's always the red and blue, Chris. Does it work in a modern? It probably doesn't work, does it, in a modern car, Mark? 
Uh, no, of course not. Um, there's like engine immobilizers and stuff like that to deal with. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> uh, if there's anybody listening to this that actually knows how to hardware a car, do do you want them to like write in and stuff? Yeah. Well, of course, be of course. <laughs> I, I, because I, if they're not hot wiring them, then how are people stealing cars now? Do they have to have the key? Do they have to do the radio repeater thing? If I want to nick a car in modern, you know, in a modern vehicle like Paul's, for example, how am I actually doing it? it feels like you can only do it with the key. I'm, uh, a friend of mine who uh, had both of his cars stolen has got some good evidence about he, this. Is this asking for a friend, Paul? No, I haven't. Oh, okay, there's I nothing have, you want to I confess. I have actually had my... Uh, my my, my, Ford, my little baby Ford Fiesta on the mean streets of Bristol whilst I was at university was stolen. And they stole that by, it was it had actual keys, and they stole that by smashing the lot through, taking it for a joyride. It was 997cc, so I don't know what joy they got out of it. <laughs> Depositing it, and I got it back. Thank goodness, those ruffians. Uh, um, but, um, but no, I haven't lost a, a car recently myself but my friend lost both of his cars and uh that was done because they broke in through the patio doors and took the keys and then drove the cars off the drive and i think that methodology is probably today the most common like you got burgled you have this really handy place where you put all your car keys by the front door um and so of course not only did they steal your gigantic telly um they also uh they also made off with your range rovers it was actually range rovers but the interesting um i think well let's put the keys somewhere else but then actually do you, if they're going to come into your house and steal some stuff and they've already had the audacity to do that whilst you're sleeping i want them to find the keys really quickly keep well away from um anybody else in the house and just take the stupid lumps of metal and i'll get a nice new one which i suppose brings us back to the whole like what is the hack what is the hacker motivation you know today um for getting involved in in hacking a vehicle and i think the um i think if anything the pathways that we've found are kind of limiting you know in terms of the real advantage for a for a hacker but what i think is really important is that we understand that that's the way it is today but as this technology begins to develop and you know the embedded nature of how we use um something like an autonomous vehicle or a tesla or whatever it is um i think is going to it's going to change that landscape a bit i think the other thing is there are a lot of people looking at how to um interfere with a car for for good and bad reasons there are a lot of just curious people at home there are tools that allow them to connect into the cameras and see what's going on there so i want to mess with that i want to find out what's on there um i might be able to add extra features to it um it's if you change some parameters in the ecu you can hot rod your car if you're bored with the equipment your manufacturer put in there you can replace it with something else so they're just curious engineers who want to to mess with stuff but while they're doing that they're generating some really great reverse engineering tools and tools that can be used by hackers to um, mess with all the all the stuff inside the car yeah, so some of that mod, some of that kind of modding that you described that uh, um, I I know petrol heads who are involved in th- changing things like the throttle mapping and all that kind of stuff. That is di- that is directly related to uh, Canvas and the and the ECU. Then those sort of boy racer petrol heads, they're almost they are kind of almost hacking the hacking the car, I guess. Oh, they totally are. They're reverse engineering um, the the ECU just in the you know to find the mapping tables um, just in the same way that a hacker would be trying to find I don't know authentication keys and things like that. There we go. Hacking been been happening for years. It has indeed. Um, I this we talked about regulation earlier. Um, I think this sort of hot rodding mapping remapping the ECU is um, actually against uh, the rules in some 
countries because you know you're changing the emissions in the car so um that's one area where the law says you're not supposed to be doing this uh, mm. but obviously there's no security that stops you happening if you can work out how to bypass the manufacturer security yeah and, you know, and, and and these days you know with the internet you can always to be honest you can always work out how to do it there's always someone who's going to tell you how to do it for your particular vehicle especially when you're in high it's highly likely that you're in a community of a load of other people with that same vehicle um so it, yeah in a way i suppose you could, could argue that that kind of car hacking is happening every day i suppose the, the question is what's the next what's the next logical step you know past past that what are the other things that people want to change I, i've actually just realized there is something that i want to be hacked on my car maybe mark you and i can talk afterwards it's got a front-facing camera that's great for the sat nav and it it does an augmented reality thing so it just like arrows over a picture of the road in front and what i want to do is turn that into the um front dash cam which is enabled on that car in other uh, countries but isn't in the uk so if you could help me with that that'd be perfect thanks mark um, yeah, I'm sure it's just a software mod. I'm not really sure how comfortable I am with you modern <laughs> software in my car, but I, I really, I'd love to explore it. <laughs> He's going to turn your brakes off at the same time. It's totally it's, fine, it's Paul. Fine. I'm just going to insert this extra software here. It's how totally many times fine. Have you done this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been on a training course. I don't want to get too much into the mechanics of it, but to get a little bit into the mechanics of it, um, I'm assuming that essentially we just plug a laptop into a car a bit like you know they used to do with formula one cars back in well they still do it with formula one cars now um but there is some way i'm assuming of essentially connecting to the car with a device in order to make modifications to that um software and if we're not near it um is there any other way of doing it so at a basic level every single car has got this port the diagnostic port obd2 so that's one way of finding the canvas um you can go and get a USB adapter, plug it into your laptop, plug the other end into the OBD2 port. Um, and, you know, as long as you configure it right, you are interacting with a CAN bus. So exactly what that means is different on different cars. So in some cars, um, you, know, there's, there's one particular car I work with, um, you, are, you have direct, there's only one CAN bus. That means you can interact with everything. The powertrain, uh, powertrain components are available on that bus. Uh, as is everything so in other cars so for instance on audi um the architecture is way more complicated that will only give you access to a diagnostic bus which only has diagnostic services you shouldn't be able to crash the car through that um, but there are gateways interconnecting all of the buses so there's something else which becomes a uh a th- an intrusion target if you can compromise the gateway that you can hop between buses so the so the the, um, the layers of security and or authentication that exist are kind of manufacturer specific. You'd never really know how much security there might or might not be in terms of trying to access a canvas. Oh, totally not. So I mean, it's interesting. I think on the uh, labs we do talk about some of the we show people some examples of different architectures just to show how much diversity there is in it. In some cases, um, they've moved beyond canvas to higher rate, um, more advanced networks as well. Um, you know, in, in high-end cars, you might actually see real Ethernet, um, which connects the media components. So, you know, the the screens on the for the for the for the passengers in the back seats, so that they can watch movies and things like that, might be on Ethernet. But the, all of these things are generally connected somehow or other. 
we should guess. We should we should try and do a sweepstake on when the first manufacturer that describes their car as military grade encryption <laughs> or ha- and like hack proof, yeah, so, yeah. hack proof, yeah. Because um, it will become a differentiator, won't it? At some point, like. I actually think a whole heap of the security um, that's starting to appear. You know, um, so on the diagnostic ports, you need to use security keys in order to upgrade the firmware. I actually think a lot of that was driven by the need to lock out other manufacturers of diagnostic <laughs> equipment really rather than you know protecting the end user of the car <laughs> so they didn't put it in there for security they put it in there to ensure that those who were repairing or diagnosing problems with the car were using the software that they'd provided rather than some third party that's that's i'm sure that's the case yeah it's awful isn't it it's an awful reason that those things should be an open standard like and you know understandable by everybody so that you can service your own car but no of course, to clear the warning light, irrespective of whether you fixed it, you know you can fix the engine warning light comes on. You fixed whatever the cause was, but you have to take it to the manufacturer to get them to put plug in their proprietary codes to clear the the status. It's also quite co- common that the standards of compliant equipment um, has a basic level, and you need the manufacturer's equipment to to unlock all the advanced features for all the things that were never standardised. On that final left turn arrives us at our destination if you've enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe rate and comment wherever you get your audio content and if you want to know more about immersive labs you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on twitter at immersive labs until next time from all of us goodbye (laughs) 